130 guys singing, Lover of My Soul, I Want to Live for You. That, is, uh, that doesn't happen apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ changing people's lives so that men don't want to live for themselves or live for entertainment or sport or live for playing around, but they want to live for Jesus. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Well, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 22. It's a passage really about Abraham and his family and the example of faith that Abraham and his family are to us and were to those in the letter of Hebrews. So, um, Hebrews 8, 11, 8 through 22. Let's read God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. I love that line. (laughs) We're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar off, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive back from the dead. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't just call us to a life of faith and then leave us wondering how in the world do we work it out. God, you call us to a life of faith in you and your word and what you've spoken to us, and then you give us people. You give us examples, real-life examples in the real world so that we can look to to see what does it look like to live a life of faith. Father, I pray this morning that we would see your instruction. I pray that we would see your encouragement from your word this morning. Give us your grace, I pray. Give grace to me as I speak. Give grace to all those who hear. And bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 
when we moved from our home in Virginia 13 years ago to go plant a church in Vancouver, British Columbia. It was over 3,000 miles from home, 3,000 miles from all of our family who was living in Virginia at the time, both sides, they were all there. We didn't have an audible word from God guiding us. We didn't hear God say, go thou to Vancouver. It just didn't happen. We went, we visited, we saw what are the talents and gifts and skills God's given, what are, what are the needs there, um, what does God seem to be confirming here. Seven years later in 2007, the church had been established, we didn't hear an audible word from God to come here to Greenville. Despite what a lot of people think, Greenville is not the Christian Mecca, and it, it, it didn't have a lot of appeal from Vancouver to Greenville. It wasn't really appealing. Um, you were appealing. Greenville, not so much. You were very appealing. We didn't have an audible word from God, though. When we decided to stay here in this church, inside of, instead of planting a church in Melbourne, as we planned in 2011, and I think next week is the one-year anniversary of sending Jim out. Isn't that crazy? One-year anniversary of sending out the church plant um, in next week. So, um, but when we decided to stay here, instead of planting a church in Melbourne, we didn't have an audible word from God. Nine months ago, when, when Aaron and Colleen Campbell came to our church, they packed up all their worldly possessions and they moved here and they didn't have an audible word from God. But they did have the word of God. So did we. So do you. We have the word of God. We have the promises of God. They had the promises of God. And when they came here, they didn't know. They were moving here in faith. They were moving further away from the homeland of Pennsylvania and, and Colleen's family who was there. They're moving further from their family who relocated to Richmond to be close to them. And they were moving away from all those things to come here. And they were coming without an audible word from God. But they were coming here basing their hope on the promises really of God. On the faithfulness of God. On the goodness of God. Yeah, you know, to some degree they hoped in our relationship over the past 14 years that hopefully there would be some, some good to come of that. They were hoping that we weren't all nuts. I think they think we're not nuts now. I'm not really sure, but um, they think you're not nuts at least. So they, they moved here because of their hope in God. Hoping in God ultimately, hoping in God, longing for His place longing really for God's homeland where, where all true believers will one day be reunited together. The thing that Aaron and Colleen have in common with the patriarchs, sounds funny to say that in the same sentence, doesn't it? <laughs> the thing that they have in common, the thing that I have in common, the thing that you have in common is that we all are to be living, living in light of the homeland that we have. You see, Virginia's not our homeland, and South Carolina's not our homeland, and Vancouver's not our homeland. The main idea we're going to see through all of these verses, really, is what saving faith looks like. And, and saving faith, it, it looks like something. Saving faith, it looks like placing all hope for life in God's Word and longing for God's, for God's place. It's, it's placing all hope for life in God's Word. Do, do you get that? Placing all hope for life in God's word, and then how do you live it out? Longing for God's place. Longing for God's place. And there's five things we're going to discover about saving faith from this passage. Five things from, really, 
the people in this letter needed to get in order to live a life of faith in God. There's things we need to get as a church in order to live a life of faith in God. We need to understand. We can have faith in God's promises and we can live in light of God's place. They didn't need to understand what saving faith entailed. They were wavering. They were tempted. They were facing trials and suffering. You might be wavering and tempted and face trials and suffering. One day you will for sure. They needed to understand that saving faith is not based on feelings. It's not based on, on, on what we make up. It's not even based on what we think we know and what we can see. You see, saving faith, it believes the word of God. And that's one thing that you see throughout all the patriarchs' lives, is that saving faith believes the word of God. That's our first point this morning. It's really simple. In all these verses, Abraham and his descendants, they all trusted in something, or rather they all trusted in someone mediated through his word. Verse 1 says, Abraham was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Abraham and his children are mentioned here. He, they didn't trust in their own word. They didn't trust in what they saw. They didn't trust in circumstances. But you, but I'm often tempted to trust in what I see. I'm, try, I'm tempted to trust in circumstances and how things are going. They didn't do that. They were trusting in God's word. They didn't trust in a trouble-free life. They did not have a trouble-free life. They had, at times, a really messed-up life. If you remember the book of Genesis, Abraham... Some details were really sketchy about his life. He didn't trust in a trouble-free life. He trusted in the Word of God. He didn't trust in circumstances. He didn't trust in his experience or in the way he felt. If we trust in the way we feel every morning when we get up, then one day we'll feel like not serving God. Next day we'll feel like maybe serving God. We can't trust in our feelings. We need to trust something more objective than that. We need a sure hope, an objective hope, We need the same hope that Abraham and all his descendants had, and that was in the objective, sure, steady word of God. Saving faith believes the word of God. It says in verse 11, look down in your Bibles, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised, Sarah had faith in God and God's promises. What are you hoping in this morning? You see, God's promises... Or what gave her faith. Now, her faith did not earn favor with God, but God blessed her. God physically changed her body to make her able to conceive. She was old. She was, in fact, well beyond the years where the way of women was still on her. And reflecting back in the Genesis account, Romans 4.19, it says that Abraham, it says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Wouldn't you love to have that said about you? Now, Matt was contemplating his own body. He's basically as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. I mean, there's some hard words. The deadness. He was about dead and Sarah's womb was dead. This was an impossible circumstance, impossible situation. But through her husband, she considered him faithful who had promised. Sometimes we look at our own circumstances, we look at our lives, and think we're as good as dead. It's, it's likely not true for us. We're, none of us are about 100 here. If you're about 100, I might agree. You're, you're almost as good as dead. I wouldn't say that, but I would probably be thinking that. <laughs> Kindly, of course. <laughs> thinking you get to go meet Jesus. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> so they weren't perfect. 
They didn't even trust God's word perfectly. You see, they were flawed. If you remember the Genesis account, you know what gives me great hope is looking back and seeing the patriarchs, they're attested to for their great faith. But if you go back and read Genesis, you're like, they were messed up. They weren't perfect. They were flawed. They were feeble. They were weak. They were sinful people. But ultimately, it wasn't their strength or their character or their performance that, counted, that God counted as righteous. God was pleased with their faith in his word. See, from the very beginning, it's always been about placing faith in God's word. The confidence we have to approach God is not because of our ability, our character, not because we're not flawed. We can take hope from Abraham and his descendants knowing they were flawed. They had hope in God's word. That's, that's why God saved them. Because they hoped in him. God saves us because we hope in him. Not in our performance. Not in our character. Not in our strength. Each one of these examples given all of these people. Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. What do they have in common? They all heard God's word of promise and they all believed based on his raw word. Without God's word, there'd be no possibility for faith, nothing to respond to. They had something objective. We need objective truth in this world. We need something objective, something reliable, trustworthy. And we have that in God's word because our feelings are fickle. My feelings vary throughout the day based on what kind of news I get or don't get, how hungry I am or whether I just ate or not, I'm sleepy. Our feelings just vary all day long. They're unreliable. What we see and perceive is unreliable. Two people can hear the same conversation and walk away say, saying, yeah, I heard he said this. And that person says, I heard, oh, I heard he said this. Our senses are really unreliable. What we think we hear and know is unreliable too. God's word is the only thing that throughout the ages is continually reliable. For us today, we have his reliable and trustworthy Words of promise. In Hebrews eleven six. if you remember, it says he rewards those who seek him. Well, how do you seek God? You seek God through his word. You seek God through what he said to us. You seek God in his promises to us. In Psalms 55, 22, God says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. See, it's, it's those words of God that enable us to have faith in God. When you meditate on his word, when you encounter God in his word, when you see that God says, cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. And when you're feeling like, I'm going to be moved, that's the words of God that give you faith. See, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. God enables us to live a life of faith. And if you live by his word, that's what will enable you and sustain you to stand up for God in the midst of challenges. And living by his word is really the only sure and steady anchor that we have, that we can know objectively what's reality. Living by his word enables you to share the gospel with your hostile neighbor or coworker. Living by his word enables you to get up in the morning and have faith for the day when all the circumstances don't lead you to that place. Living by his word enables you to have an endurance in the midst of suffering and hardship and pain and loss. When a loved one dies, when you lose a baby, when bad things happen that are inexplicable, when you don't understand, living by God's word enables you to endure. 
You see, the patriarchs are given as examples because they lived through a lot of garbage. <laughs> Abraham saw a lot of terrible things happen. So did Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He had his fair share of challenges, wouldn't you say? But all of them are, are listed here because they have something in common. It's not trouble-free living. It's not the name it and claim it kind of faith we, we're seeing here in the life of the patriarchs. What we're seeing is they depended upon, they relied on God's word, and they were commended for that. But saving faith for Abraham and his descendants it wasn't just seen in belief without works. We see the second thing we're going to look at. Saving faith, it obediently responds to God's word. They obediently responded to God's word. It's a picture of saving faith that relied on God's word, that heard God's promises and lived in light of them, and then saving faith that also it, it responds. Saving faith, it obediently responds to God's word. It, obedience, it didn't save them at all. It's not what it's saying, but it's saying in response to God's word, they had faith. And they obeyed. If you're lacking obedience in your life and you're saying you have faith in God, I would say no. James says faith without works is dead. Does that mean that, wait a minute, we earn favor before God with our obedience? Well, absolutely not. But our obedience will be fruit. It will be evidence of the fact that we have saving faith and that he's made us alive. Now, that doesn't mean you obey perfectly. You're going to be flawed and weak and feeble. That's why we have the patriarchs to see that. You're going to fail. You're going to be inconsistent. But do you desire to obey God? You see, if you desire to obey God, that's a God-given desire. We don't naturally have that on our own. Apart from God, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Apart from God, we are at enmity with God. We don't want the things of God. So if you desire to obey and there's any fruit in your life, you can see that, yes, thank you, God, that I have saving faith because I desire to obediently respond to your word. Abraham, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Even our steps of obedience are done by faith. Thinking, God, I can't do this on my own. I don't feel like I can do this today. I don't feel like I can get up. I don't feel like I can, I can, I can face the challenges I have ahead of me. I don't feel like I can be reconciled with my spouse that we just had this big argument last night that went unresolved. I don't feel like I can do that. I don't feel like I can leave my kids. I don't feel like I can go to work. I don't feel like I can uh, deal with my angry coworker or my militant boss. I don't feel like I can do these things. But we can obey God as we have faith in God. We can obey God as we have faith in God. It's an evidence of faith. And evidence that we believe that God's going to reward those who seek him. And evidence that we believe that God's word can be trusted even when we don't see it. It's evidence that God knows what's best for us. That he wants what's best for us. And that he's able to do what's best. That, that he loves us. Abraham, he, it says he didn't know the future. He, he didn't know what was coming. He didn't know where he was going. So God calls him, he obeys. He didn't know where he was going when he set out. That would be a little confusing, wouldn't it? Okay, go. All right, I'm going. And he just kind of goes. I think why we have Abraham is because God wants us to know that we live life in the unknown too. We don't live life in the known. We don't know the next step. We think we do. We think we have plans that we can make. We think we have a secure, sure job. And then the next day we get laid off. We don't know the future. We don't know what it holds. We don't know what's literally around the next bend as we're driving down the road. Life's uncertain. We, we only have the illusion at times that we know what's next, right? We don't really know what's next. We have the illusion that we know what's next. 
In any moment, a, a tornado could come in and crash the whole place down. As we're sitting here, we have no idea what's next, but the reason why we're not paranoid and freaked out about that is because we can trust in God. We can have faith in Him. Abraham, he did not know. He says, and, and really, he, he never fully received God's promises here on earth. He never fully understood until he went to be with God. He didn't fully understand. He didn't have a permanent home for himself and his descendants here on earth. So wait a minute, is God faithful? Yes. But he was living for a home that wasn't here. Martin Luther once said, Faith is not knowing where you are going, what you are doing, what you are suffering, but to follow the bare voice of God. It's not knowing where you are going, what you're doing, or what you are suffering, but to follow the bare voice of God. Abraham's responding to the bare voice, the bare word of God with confidence in the midst of the unknown. The people in the book of Hebrews, the people that this this letter was written to, they were tempted to, to worry. They were tempted to shrink back. They were tempted to turn away because life was unknown. And to some degree, people in the, that this letter was written to the book of Hebrews, is they, they had some more unknowns than we do. We, we have way more things that are known. Right now, we know that we have a relatively safe government, that we have relative freedom, that we have the, the ability to freely worship. They didn't know those things. They didn't know if tomorrow their property would come and be confiscated or not because it was the other day, so they were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. They were living in the unknown. But the world we live in is unknown too, isn't it? We don't know what next steps are for us. We don't know what will happen around the next corner. We don't know when we're going to die. But Abraham and the people his letter was written to, they could, they could rely in him and his word and they could respond in faith and obey God because he was trustworthy and because he knows. You see, God knows even when we don't and, and we're never going to be in a place on this earth and the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they're all meant to show us that don't expect a life of knowing. Don't expect a life of certainty. Don't expect a life when you're going to know what's next. But you can expect that God does. You see, all throughout the life of the patriarchs, what's the clear pattern there? God knew what was coming next. He just didn't fully reveal it to them. He expected and wanted them to trust in him, rely on him, and obey him. It was about a relationship with God. It wasn't about knowing what was next. They, they needed trust. God knows what's next. In your life, God knows what's next. Maybe you're worried about, um, what's my future career going to be if you're a college student? Or maybe you're... Not even at college, you're in high school or middle school and you're thinking, what do I do in life? You don't have to know. Your parents might not like that I just said that. You don't have to know. You can say, you know what, let's do what's wisdom. Let me take the counsel of my parents. And, and you know, I'm going to step out in faith, trusting that God's going to make my way clear. And I'm going to pick something. Now, I'm going to discourage you from not picking something if you are in high school, you're in college, you need to step out in faith and actually pick a course. But you don't have to know exactly what the outcome's going to be. All we're called to is to obediently respond to God's word. He calls us to obey without spelling out each step of the way. He does it because he wants us to rely on him, depend upon him, to not be self-sufficient. See, if we knew every step of the way, we would not feel like we needed God. 
we'd be self-sufficient. We would ignore God. Why would we pray? Why would we seek God? Why would we even talk to Him if we knew everything that was happening? We would have the illusion that we were God. So God in His mercy does not share what's next because He loves us. He promises, though, to never leave us. He promises to never forsake us. What are His words that help us obey? He says, I'll always be with you, even to the end of the age. He says, I'll be with you. I'll protect you. I'll enable you to do what you're not able to do. What does it look like in your own life to be called to the unknown? Maybe you're in the midst of the unknown right now. God will enable you to faithfully obey Him as you rely on His Word. For us, it may be being called to be here, not knowing what's next. The going elsewhere part, this is when, when Abraham was called to go elsewhere, it's not an example that all of us need to pick up our bags and go somewhere else. It's not what Scripture is saying. Most of the people that this letter of Hebrews was written to, they didn't go anywhere. They stayed right there. But they were called to follow in Abraham's footsteps Hearing God's word and by faith obeying God in response. What are the majority of us called to do? We're called to know God's word, hear God's word, and just obey him in response. To trust that he knows in the midst of the unknown, he knows. It says in verse 9 that he went to live in the land of promise. But did you notice that it says he went to live in what? In tents. I'm glad that I don't live in a tent, especially this morning. I woke up, there's this crust of ice all over my back table. I, I was really glad that I, I, I don't live in a tent with no foundation, no floor. They lived in tents, he says. Verse 10 explains why. It wasn't just because they were nomadic people. God actually purposed for them, called them to live in tents. Why did he do that? He, he called them to live in tents because he wanted to get into their heads and he wanted us to see that this world's not our home. Verse 10, it explains why. Look down at verse 10, or I think on the overheads as well. It says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. As opposed to a tent which has no foundations, he was looking forward to the city. He lived in tents because why? The tent had no foundations. He was living in a tent with no foundations because he was looking forward to the city that had foundations. And not only did the city have foundations, is telling us, but the city had some killer foundations. This city had foundations that they can't be packed up and moved. This city had foundations that are solid, that no one can undo, that are perfect. It says, he was looking forward to the city has foundations whose designer and builder is God. If you were having somebody build a house for you, right now we're in the midst of trying to get a new house. It's not fully done and we're going to move in. And, and, but I, if, if God had, I knew that God stepped down and he built the house, <laughs> I'd be pretty sure It was a good foundation. We have a sure foundation. A city whose foundations are built and designed by God. That means he's perfectly designed this place for us to live. In every way, it's perfectly suited, perfectly fit, perfectly meets every godly desire you could have. And it's perfectly stable and secure. But it's not here. That's the point, is that saving faith, it lives for God's homeland. That's the third point. Saving faith, it lives for God's homeland. That's why it's telling us he lived in tents because he wasn't looking forward to a city here. He was looking forward to a city there that has more secure foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We can see this in verse 10. Then we see it again in verses 13 through 16. 
He didn't become too attached to this world. He lived in tents. And it says he's looking forward to the ultimate city. They didn't have foundations because they wanted a city that had foundations designed and built by God. What city are you living for? What place are you hoping in? What foundations are you looking to? What are you trying to build in this life? Are you trying to make this life so secure, so perfect, that that's where your peace lies? Well, if you are, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then what God's going to do at times, he'll shake that foundation up because he doesn't want you to be sure in foundations here. He doesn't want you to have peace based on everything going smoothly and being perfect here. He wants you to have peace that's based on him, the designer and builder whose foundations are secure, knowing that he holds us, we don't hold us. It's never good for us to have the, the illusion that we keep ourselves. You know why? Because it keeps us from the place of greatest help and hope. See, if, if we're comfortable, if we're feeling like we're secure, if we're feeling like we need nothing, then we're not looking to God. And so we, we're living a delusional life that thinks that everything I want is satisfied here. And God says, no, that's the worst thing for you because that is such a feeble, unsatisfactory place to have hope. You need a more sure hope. And so at times, that's why we have times of struggle and difficulties and challenges in our lives and where things are uncertain because God loves us. It's not because God's being capricious or mean or punishing us. Abraham was looking for his true home, a place where he would not be a stranger. Don't you want a place where you... You feel like you're just finally at home, finally at rest. That Sabbath rest that ever since the beginning that God rested from his works and ever since then it's been a, all of history has been looking and longing for a place of rest. You see, God has a place of rest for us and it's not here. It's in our heavenly home with him in his presence. Now in the here and now you can find rest in God's presence, but not ultimately. Ultimately, that rest will come when you're no longer a stranger, when you enter into the city that you've always belonged to but never knew. No earthly city would satisfy Abraham. For us, there's no worldly city that will satisfy us either. I've lived in a really beautiful city in Vancouver. It was, it was gorgeous. We lived 15 minutes from the water. We had the mountains. It kind of came right down to the ocean. It was It was beautiful. But I don't imagine or fantasize that Vancouver or Greenville or Anderson, yes, even Anderson, or Spartanburg or Greer or Traveler's Rest, none of those are the ultimate city. I don't even think there is a city in Traveler's Rest. It's, you drive through it, but I've never seen a city there. But there, there's, it's not easily, it's not Miami, it's not Portland, it's not... Wherever you think of, wherever your mind goes of, I wish I could live there, I wish I could be there, that's the ultimate place to be, that's the ultimate place to live. That's just a lie, really. The only ultimate city, the only ultimate place we have to live with the ultimate climate and everything we could ever desire is a city whose foundations and builder is God. We need to live for that city. We can have this romanticized notion that moving somewhere else or somewhere better will make us better disciples of Jesus. It won't. Go to Paris and Monte Carlo, Beijing, Singapore, London, New York, Geneva, Kuala Lumpur, wherever your mind just 
thinks it would be easier to live there. If I weren't around Americans, I could live better like a Christian. If I, if I wasn't around these people here in Greenville who are so religious, then I could be better Christian there. If I was around this kind of people in this place, then it would be easier to live as a disciple. Don't kid yourself. We don't live for cities here. We can't become too attached to the world. It doesn't mean that we don't purchase things we do. I'm in the middle of getting a house. Monday we close. So we're, we're, it's, we continue to do business and live and make wise decisions, but we don't do those things thinking that this is ultimately the place where we've arrived. What it means is that we have a perspective that we aren't living for the things of the earth. We're living for ultimate home. Remember, he's talking, this author of Hebrews, he's talking to people who've had their possessions taken away. Their friends have been thrown in jail, and some of them have been too. They're facing the imminent threat of losing their possessions again. He's saying, don't worry about it. This isn't your home anyway. One day, all of us, every one of us is going to lose our house. Is that really encouraging? Every one of you, if you have a house, you think you own it, you only own it temporarily. If, if you have possessions, you only have them temporarily. Even if you own them outright according to the world, you never have anything here permanently. We only have one permanent home, and it is not here. In verse 13, look, it says, These all died in faith. This is supposed to be an encouraging passage, right? They died in faith? Not having received the things promised? Whoa, 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 hang on. This is meant to encourage our faith, but it says they didn't receive the things promised. Yes, that's exactly right. It says, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth, yes, to some degree, Abraham and Sarah, they, they, they received a bit of the promises of God. Yes, they saw their son Isaac, but they didn't see many nations. They didn't see how God would make their descendants as innumerable as the sand while they were alive. But they did see them with their eyes of faith. God's calling each and every one of us to live obedient lives with eyes of faith, saying, God, I don't see it. I don't see it happening. I believe it even though it's far off. It says they, they saw and they greeted the things from afar. They said, yeah, we don't see it right now, but we know. Hey, we got a son. We know that one day we're going to have many nations from him. We don't see it yet, but we know God's faithful. They'd lived as though the promises of God were really theirs, even though they didn't see how. What the scripture is helping us guard against as well is that kind of the false name it and claim it faith where you say, well, if we live a life of faith, we can be healthful and we can be prosperous and we can get everything we want in every way and see all the promises of God fulfilled in this lifetime. Well, no, that's not what this passage is saying. They died in faith and God honored that faith. Verse 14, it says, For people who speak thus, make it clear they're seeking a homeland. This is the kind of faith that says, I believe because I know that one day God's going to make all of his promises come true. Until then, I'm going to trust in God for whatever life holds because I, I know, I know that he's going to bring me into a truly perfect place. He's going to bring me into a true homeland. It's kind of faith that says, I believe he's going to bring me to the place where I've never seen but always wanted to be. And he's prepared a place for everybody who trusts him in this way. And it's better than our best longings. You see, our, our true homeland, it's going to feel even more like home than the most homey place you've ever been here on earth. Maybe you've lived places, or maybe it's right now, and you just, you really, when you, you know how it is if you go away from your house for a long period of time, and you come back, and you're like, oh, it's just so good to be in my bed. It's just so good to be back home. Oh, it's just good. It's a place I can rest. I can be comfortable. 
Heaven's going to be even more than that. It's, it's going to be the, the place you never knew that you were always longing to be. And when we get there, you'll finally say, yes, I'm here. Oh, it's so good to be home. Quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. And if you're struggling with pain, I recommend this book to you. It says, but God will look to every soul like its first love because he is its first love. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone. Because you were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch. As a glove is made for a hand. I love that. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone. Because why? You were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch. As a glove's made for a hand. What's, let me ask you church. What's the homeland you're seeking? Is it the American dream? What if America fails? We lived in Canada, and after the U.S. had invaded Iraq, after responding to 9-11, I was in an office building right on the waterfront in Vancouver, a really beautiful place. And, but right outside of that building, all of a sudden, there became a tent city. And they were protesting Americans. It was great. I looked right out my office window down, and there was this ugly tent city with smoke and bullhorns and loud noises, and they were all like, chanting anti-American slogans because it was right across from the embassy. This, this shanty town, it made me aware that um, I, I, I'm not Canadian. <laughs> it, it stood out to me. You know, I, I kind of gotten lulled into just fitting into the culture and being part of everything and, and, and just being Canadian but then when somebody was standing outside the door and, and protesting Canadian, protesting Americans, I thought, whoa, hang on, that's me. Well, not really, because I wasn't the government and they were very friendly to me. And, but there was something good that came out of that. It helped me see that that wasn't my homeland either. And that, you know what, America's not either. I don't have a home country in one sense. Yes, I was born in the United States. My parents were too. I'm a citizen here. I'm grateful that God has given us this place at this time. But you know what? It's good to know that I have something more secure than that citizenship. I have a citizenship that's in heaven. And you know what? The world now protests against us as Christians. Not as Americans, but as Christians. Now, if you're being protested as American, who cares? Be protested against for what really matters, for, for being a Christian, for standing up for God, for sticking out, for doing the right thing, for following him, obeying him in response, trusting in him. Look like a fool for Jesus. And when the world protests against you, let it affirm something to you. Let it affirm the fact you're not a citizen here. Let it bear good fruit. It made me realize when I lived in Canada that neither Canada, United States, my home. You see, we moved there to spread the news of my true homeland that humanity was created for. We moved there to tell the people about the truth that has nothing to do, nothing to do, nothing to do with being American or being Canadian or being Brazilian or Russian or whatever place you might be from. It has nothing to do with that. And if you believe in the nonsense of a, of a cultural Christianity that tries to port Americanism as if that is salvation, then you're hoping in the wrong thing. 
We're meant to not feel at home in any country to a degree, and that's a good thing. Yes, I have no plans of going anywhere. Who knows what God is next? I have no plans of going anywhere. We, we're sending down connective roots. We're, but this country is not my homeland. This country is not your homeland if you place your faith in Jesus. Don't get confused. Our true homeland is heaven and we were meant for there. And sometimes pain causes us to lose sight. Lose sight of where our home really is. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, for this slight, he's talking about this momentary affliction we experience here, this slight momentary affliction, and it doesn't mean like it's only going to last a month, this, our lifetime of momentary affliction, our lifetime momentary affliction is preparing us. What is this meant for? Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We have an eternal weight of glory that this momentary affliction is preparing us for. You can have hope and faith in God He's using these things to prepare you. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. All of Hebrews is about looking to things that are unseen. Seeing Jesus and having hope in his unseen promises for the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What you see around you will all fade and go away. It's not eternal, but God's promises are eternal. Verse 15, our pastor said, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. Julie and I were from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. It's a beautiful place. Rolling hills, it's gorgeous. Uh, I think one of the most beautiful places on earth is this at the top of Sky Meadows State Park overlooking the valley. And you can see for 40 miles, it's just, it's just gorgeous. And these rolling hills and Civil War battles and just neat history there. And but I don't think we'll ever live in Virginia again as much as I love the valley and the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's not that we can't go back there, but we're not living for there. Abraham, as a sentence, it wasn't saying they couldn't go back to Ur. It says they've been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could go back to Ur, and in fact, when Abraham sent his son to go, well, his son's servant to go find a wife, he went back to there, but he wasn't going to stay. What it's saying is that he, he wasn't living he wasn't living for his homeland here. He was living for a homeland there. If God has you here, wherever God places you, delight in where he has you. Delight in where God has you. Because ultimately, we aren't living for here anyway. Look at verse 16. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. For he's prepared for them a city. He wasn't ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because they all took him at his word. God won't be ashamed to be called your God either. If you take God at his word, you say, yes, I'm your God. I will rescue you. I'll keep you. I'll save you. You're mine. Church, where do you need to trust that he'll direct your steps? Where do you need to trust that God's strong enough? Where do you need to trust that he's wise enough? Where do you need to trust that he's loving enough? Verses 13 to 16, they're really the central focus of the whole chapter. What he's saying is they live for an eternal, heavenly city. And that changed the whole way that they lived in this world. We're to live for an eternal, heavenly city. It's meant to change everything. Does it? Does it change the way you live? They had a kind of faith that said they looked for a heavenly one, a heavenly home. Science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, he wrote, 
I don't believe in the afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. (laughs) What a sad, horrible view. And I think at times it can be common even among Christians. You see, our vision of heaven, it's limited to an extended, boring, uninspiring church service at times. It's not captured our imaginations. It's not transformed our lives, but it's meant to. We're meant to desire a better, better country that is a heavenly one. The fourth point, briefly, in verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. He was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He was willing to sacrifice for God. That's the fourth point. Faith, saving faith, real faith, saving faith, is willing to sacrifice for God. That's why we have this verse here. He's willing to give up the one thing, the one person through whom all the promises would be fulfilled. And it wasn't just generic. It said, through Isaac will you have many nations. Through Isaac would your offspring be reckoned. He was unique. He was irreplaceable. He was the only begotten. He was his beloved son. And there seemed to be a contradiction to Abraham. Okay? But we we don't notice the struggle. There was a contradiction between the promise of God, which says that I'm going to make all these promises filled through Isaac, and there was a a seeming contradiction, right? What was it? The promise of God. I'm going to make all your nations, all the nations come through Isaac. And then he said, do what? Kill Isaac. What? That, that those don't seem to match up very well. <laughs> hang, hang on. There seems to be a contradiction here. But get this. He, he, we don't see any turmoil in Genesis or in Hebrews. It doesn't comment about that because you know Why? Abraham, he reacts with, you know, it's God's problem. God God promised it. I I believe it. God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. And you know what? If God has to raise him from the dead, so be it. That's God's problem. God's going to do both. God God promised. God called me to do this. God's got to take care of it. You don't see any inner struggle in Abraham's life. That's amazing. That's why we're having Abraham commended to us. He trusts in God's promise and obeyed God's command. He, he regarded the apparent conflict. And in our lives, there's apparent conflict at times. God, why are you calling me to this? And then it seems like you're frustrating my plans. He wasn't just giving up his past as he obeyed God's commands. He was giving up his future. He gave up his past already and he left Ur of Chaldees. Now he's having to give up his future. And he's in the act of about to kill his only son. And that's the kind of faith we're called to where we give up our past and we trust in God for the future. And that really just brings us to our fifth and final point in the last couple minutes here. Abraham had faith that was willing to sacrifice for God. Why? Because he believed that God can do the impossible. Saving faith believes God can do the impossible. Saving faith believes God can do the impossible. We are called to approach God that way. To trust in his words. To believe that he really can do the impossible. When Abraham, 
want you to look back in Genesis. It, it, well, Abraham, I'll just read it to you. When Abraham left his servants behind, his words were really telling. He left his servants behind. He was going up to the top of the mountain. You remember the story. He, was, he left his servants behind with a donkey, and he had Isaac carry this bundle of sticks up the hill, and they were going, and Isaac's like, uh, Dad, so like, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> Hang on. I'm a little nervous here. Um, he says, don't worry, God, I'll provide. And then, but what did he say to his servants? He said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. Remember what he said next? And then we will come back to you. Whoa! He knew what he was going to go and do. But he had faith that somehow he didn't know how the impossible was going to happen. I, I'm going to do what God's calling me to do. I'm going to slay my son, but I know that we're going to come back to you. I don't know how because God promised it that we're going to have all the offspring from Isaac. So I don't know how that's going to happen. I'm going to step out in faith and obey him that he can do the impossible. And it says, figuratively speaking, in these verses, God resurrected him. The people who first heard this letter, they were descendants of Abraham. They were being urged to take heart because God had been faithful to the promises of their forefathers. So God would be faithful to them also. You and I are being called to take heart. Here's the interesting thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in God's promised one and his promised son, then it says that we're children of Abraham by faith. So we inherit, we inherit the heavenly city too. We're to live seeing that our forefathers in the faith were faithful to the promises of God And they inherited the heavenly place, their homeland. It says, From this one man, this one woman, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. What's that meaning to show us? God's able to bring life and life abundantly where things seem dead. He's able to do the impossible. For you, your marriage may seem dead. Have faith in the only faithful God who promises to enable you to do all things through Him. Maybe you seem dead in your ability to change and grow. Maybe, men, you were convicted yesterday. I can't do it. Have faith in the faithful God who promises what seems impossible to redeem you and give you life and change you and make you into His image. Maybe your children or your parents or your relatives seem dead to God. Maybe they are currently dead to God. Abraham was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. He was being commanded to kill Isaac and was going to make him dead. But he had faith that God could do the impossible. Have faith that the God who opens blind eyes, who makes the deaf to hear, who makes the lame to walk, Jesus who spoke in everything, the storm was calm. He spoke and legion left. Jesus, when he speaks, the impossible happens. God has spoken to us. And we're to have faith in the impossible. Consider him who, faithful who has promised the power of the gospel. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
Consider him who's promised to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, even though we may not see what we're praying for in our lifetime. In the last three verses, they give us the examples of Isaac. They give us the example of Jacob and Joseph. And what do they do? They just all illustrate that God, God is the God of the impossible. They illustrate saving faith that believes in God who can do impossible things. You see Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph, trusting the unthing seems to come. Where did he do that? He did that from Egypt, not in his homeland. And where did he die? In Egypt. How about Joseph? At the end of his life, where did Joseph die? In Egypt. But what did he say in Genesis 50, 24? He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Why? Because he knew that God was the God of the impossible. Even if he didn't see it, he knew it was going to happen. He had faith, and he trusted in God. He spent all of his life, most of his life, in Egypt, away from his homeland. He knew that one day God would bring him home just like he promised. And he saw the unseen fulfillment of the promises of God. His true land was elsewhere. He was certain of it. He based his barrier plans on it. 400 years later, 400 years later, Moses carried his bones back. What a beautiful picture. But Israel is not Joseph's final resting place. Wasn't any of the patriarchs really in one sense. Let me go ahead and stand for a moment. See, all of these verses, it's meant to, to point you to one place. It's meant to point you to saving faith outside of yourself. Saving faith that places hope for life in God's word and that longs for God's place. Let me ask you, church, what are you hoping in? Are you hoping in God's word? Are you longing for his place? That's what saving faith looks like. And that's the kind of faith that is sure and steady. The resting place of Joseph, it's the place that God's promised. It's the ultimate city. What's our resting place? It's the place that God's promised. It's the ultimate city. Designed and built by God himself. He's the ultimate perfect builder. It's complete. It lacks nothing. We can be sure our final resting place is secure in heaven. We can have that saving faith that places hope for life in God's word and longs for his place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us to figure out what does saving faith look like. You give us the examples of those who've gone before us, flawed, weak, feeble individuals who had faith in your promises and have received the inheritance. God, I pray that we would not be swayed by what we see or feel or what we think we know. But God, I pray that you would give us hope in your promises and your living word and we would live our lives by your word. And God, I just pray that we would have a longing for your place, for the homeland that's not here.